And these are the stories of the Kurimal Flood Hub and the volunteers who help support and rebuild our community. Today is the first episode of our podcast, Custodial Care, and I'll be interviewing Naomi Moran, the general manager of Koori Mail, all about her experience and time setting up the Koori Mail Flood Hub and how she managed to piece it all together alongside all the rest of the volunteers. Thanks for joining me um, today for a little casual conversation. And this season we're looking at... Um, the floods that hit our region in 2022 and it's been a year so I thought it'd be a good time to come back and do a little reflection. Thank you. It's it's really exciting. Like it's exciting to have an opportunity to just talk through our experiences and I guess for people to really understand what that's been like, you know, for us to support the community. Um, and really nice that we get to work on this little project together. So, yeah, it's awesome. Missed looking at your face. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I think that's the biggest realisation at the moment is like now that everything's kind of, you know, packed down and we're all getting back to our day job and our projects. I think um, for us, there's this thing about how we're feeling like we're going to be disconnected in some way from each other and um you know, as mob, it's really important that we feel connected. Um, so I think we're all just, yeah, really kind of not only appreciating what was, but how can we, you know, still, you know, catch up and see each other and check in on each other and, and still do the work. Yeah, because mm-hmm. what happens in the disaster situation, I think people don't understand the enormity of it, but also the intimacy of it. Mm. You know, that really what was created here was family and we just had each other's back and it was like nothing else mattered the politics kind of melted away for any mob listening you know you understand the black politics is rife all across our nation but in these kind of survival events I guess it really shows our humanness and how we just want to show up and support and care for each other but that's nothing new for our communities. Yeah exactly right and I think that's one of the things that we talked so much about over the past 12 months was um, that how we operated, what we did from the start, who was involved, who came into the fold uh, was just this really um, organic process and it was natural to who we are as blackfellas like this is what we do this is what we do whether it's a time of you know crisis and tragedy caused by a natural disaster whether it's sorry business or whether it's you know you know we say a lot when one of us is down all of us is down when one of us is up we're all up um, and so I think they were the foundations of how everything had started Uh, You know, once the word got out, it was everybody, you know, coming to support. And like you said, just, you know, leaving those politics out of it, you know, those mob politics out of it. And I'm not saying that we weren't immune to that the whole way (laughs) because there was plenty of it. But um, I think, 
standing really firm and strong in the reasons why we were there and standing really firm and strong in um, who was there to support us and stayed with us to the very end, like yourself and Kiri and, you know, all these other amazing people that, um, like you said, like, you know, that's family, that's what we've created. And I, and I actually, you know, wish that everybody had the opportunity to feel what we feel because I think that stuff is, it's stuff that you, you'll never let go of regardless of whether we see each other every day or not. Like you actually can't, you know, put into words just how special that connection is. I agree. And as black fellas and black women especially, mm. you know, community is everything to us. You're a mother, um, you're a sister, you're a daughter. I just want to start by talking a little bit about like why do you think community is so much more embedded in our way of being as blackfellas on this continent? And why do you think that non-Indigenous Australians don't have that similar opportunity to connect with their communities or feel like they can connect with their communities in the same way that we do? Mm. Um, I've always said, you know, um, before I came into this world, um, the world knew, our people knew, that first I was coming into this world as a Nyangambal person, a Dungari person, Bundjalung person, an Aboriginal person, um, and then I come into this world as a female. But who I am first and foremost is an Aboriginal person. That is my identity before it's even determined that I'm going to be male or female. And I think anybody who comes from a background of culture where they see themselves coming into the world as that with those foundations understands that that is the very uh, reason for why we do what we do every single day, whether it's um, our education journey, our employment journey, how we see ourselves, you know, socially, um, how we see ourselves with our goals and our aspirations and our dreams. For me, it's very much acknowledging that this is who I was before it was determined, what, you know, whoever or whatever else I was going to become. So for me, that they're my foundations for, you know, what I do every single day. Um, and I'm not saying that, um, you know, I get up every day and look at myself in the mirror and go, oh, I'm a black fella. So, you know, I'm like loading that onto myself every day. But it's very much part of, you know, my standing, um, you know, being grounded in that and making sure that that absolutely either is the reason or why I align myself with the work that I do and the people that I do. And so I think non-Indigenous Australia, when they don't have that, you know, they don't have that. They have this whole other foundations which comes back to, you know, colonial history and colonialism and, um, you know, and obviously, you, you know, that's that's with them but what's with me, um, I, I see that as a very real part of, of what I do and so I think that's a part of uh, your identity, your connection, your place, your belonging. So I think non-Indigenous Australia... Um, they don't have that in the context that we do. Um, and so then a lot of their journeys and a lot of their reasons why or their purpose or how they see themselves in the world is more based on other people's experiences and the idea of what should be and shouldn't be, whereas ours isn't. And so I think that's why we're just so fiercely determined, um, 
you know, to, to change the world and to change like how people see us in our communities because it's it's embedded into us from, from day one, you know, and we don't say it's in our DNA for no reason because it is. Um, and, and I think that also is part of the reason why there's a lot of brokenness and disconnect between having those conversations with non-Indigenous Australia because it's really hard for people to to understand when they don't feel what you feel. It's almost been like a, a survival as well mm. for us, right? Mm. You know, like the being a marginalised community and oppressed for so long in mm. colonial history, the fabric, I mean, our culture relies on us being in deep relationship with one another. But then actually what the colonisers did was we actually needed to deepen that even more mm. because mm. of our, um, you know, intergenerational trauma, the lack of intergenerational wealth, um, even just the amount of jajams that we pop out, you know, because yeah. <laughs> can't stop, can't stop. Well, I'm a one-hit wonder. <laughs> <laughs> one and done, as they say. But, you know, yeah, you're right. Um, and I think it takes a special type of person, you know, um, or, you know, a group of people to really... Oh, right. just we'll in pause. time. we got our big brother here bringing in some cake for us. Yes, thank you. You know, real black fellas, don't knock, just come in. Thank you, Mr. Wayne <laughs> King. We'll be seeing you on the show later. We'll be interviewing him. We'll talk him all about his sweet cakes. <laughs> Good ways. <laughs> um, so, I mean, 28th of February 2022, the rain's really, like, set in and hit. And this hasn't been Lismore's first flood. And you've been in this community for a very long time. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, just, I guess, talk about a little bit about the flooding in Lismore, what you've seen um, and how that prepared or kind of um, influenced the setting up of the Korea Mail Flood Hub? Yeah. And, you know, and I just want to acknowledge that, you know, um, even though I'm not Widgeable Wireable, um, I'm from a neighbouring community, um, but I've certainly lived um, in this region, you know, in this particular part of the region for a long time went to school here and obviously started out here um, as a 14 year old working with the Kurimal and the Kurimal's always been based in Lismore so um, the Kurimal as an organisation has a history of seeing you know the floodwaters come into this town and that's very much been like part of my experience as well working in this area but I remember mum you know telling us yarns about um, one of the houses that we lived in in Lismore just near the hospital that's on low ground about, uh, you know, when a flood came through there. And, you know, when you're kids, it's it's fun and exciting because you get to swim in, you know, and I mean, look, now you, you'd be like, don't swim in those waters. But, you know, so we've always known and acknowledged that this is a flood-prone region, um, that it's always going to be at risk of flooding. Um, the last major flood in 2017 was only 12 months after I'd started back as uh, general manager. And we were actually uh, in production. So the waters were expected to peak early hours of Friday morning around like 1am. We were meant to go to print on the Sunday. So you can imagine getting all these warnings. And that was the first time, the first real challenge in my role around, holy shit, what do we do here? Like, what decisions do I need to make here? How am I actually going to... um, do this like what happens here um and I remember um my old office downstairs um sitting in there 
going on midnight. Uh, my sister knocks on the door, brings me in a blanket and a pillow and some food because I was so determined to stay that I wasn't going to pull the plugs on any of our computers or equipment until I, I guess, absolutely had to um, or, you know, just stay the night and monitor everything as best as, as I could. Everybody else had gone home. Um, and then, silly enough, I leave my office light on, right? So I left my office light on. SES gets a cop of my light from across the street and goes, oh, my God, who's still in the building? Comes knocking on the door. So then I go and answer the door instead of just hiding under the table and going, no, I'm going to save the paper. So I go and answer the door and he's like, what are you bloody doing? Like, you know, um, once that river, once the levee peaks and overtops, like it's going to be bad. And anyway, so I ended up having to go, you know, I had to swallow my pride and make the sensible decision and jumped in their um, rescue car, mind you, um, and then and then go home. Um, and then obviously the next day, um, the water that had come into the town at that time, um, we only got about a metre of it through our foyer. So it actually didn't come into our office. Everything was fine. And then a couple of days later, uh, we were able to come back in and put the paper out. We were only one day late. So we usually go to print on the Sunday. We went to print on the Monday. Um, so, you know, back then just seems like a distant memory compared to what happened last year. <laughs> so, and I laugh because I'm like, man, you know, like that was, that was huge back then in 2017. And, and that flood was major for the rest of the community. And we're just lucky that the way this building's built, the water didn't come in. So then this time around, um, you can imagine that we were prepared in that, um, right, we know how to elevate things to the top of the tables. We know how to unplug things that we may not need, but we absolutely don't touch the things that we need to keep producing as a newspaper. And it was five o'clock that afternoon um, that leading into the Monday morning where the river was expected to um, overtop the levee, sorry. And I was on the Gold Coast trying to spend some time with a girlfriend of mine you know, it was cyclonic weather up there. So I was like, oh, this is going to get pretty full on. Um, my man calls me and he's like, you better get back down here. <laughs> and so I fly down the highway and get down here about four o'clock in the afternoon. By five o'clock, myself, um, my partner, my staff members were here elevating things on tables and stuff. So going through the same preparedness that, you know, had happened in 2017, by midnight that night, we were back down here trying to elevate again because that's when all the warnings came in that it was going to be huge, that it was ex it, it was going to exceed the 12 metres. Um, and by that time, we just, we had nowhere to put things. Uh, we put it to the highest point that we could and it was just a waiting game just like everybody else. And then obviously waking up the next day and the realisation that, you know, 14.25 metres of water had come in. Um, and I just remember being so desperate to see footage on the TV about, you know, of our building. I had to see where the waterline got up to on the outside of the building to determine how bad it was on the inside. And that is like hold, like literally holding your breath and not knowing um, what was going to happen until I'd seen some of the other buildings. And I went, that's it. We're gone. So, you know, to, to know the space well enough to go, right, um, I've seen how affected the other buildings are, I can already tell that we're done for. And then the realisation that we're done for <laughs> is like, right, 
I mean, what can I say? Like, what what do you do in that moment? So um, there's definitely a history there, history of the Kurimal being part of this region and flooding, um, you know, but obviously a history of our staff members just kind of going, yep, this is a reality of it, so let's just get on with it. And after that day, it wasn't like, okay, let's get the paper back. Actually, the first thing you did was... Yeah, the first thing that we did, um, you know, was between Amarina and I, um, former staff member, was having conversations around we just need to help. Um, as, and she actually came down and got inside the building um, and took some photos. And I just remember her sending me a message going, do you want to see the photos? And I just went, I don't. I, you know, like I don't, but I have to. And so she sent me the photos and I was just like, holy shit. Uh, I know that everybody else's, ex- you know, experience in that moment would have been exactly the same. Um, but for us, it was like our bread and butter is producing a newspaper. We're an independent, self-funded media organisation. Um, our, you know, we rely on the product that is the newspaper to keep this business sustainable. Um, and to kind of go (laughs) in that moment to make two really quick decisions in that moment, that Monday morning, to make those decisions to stop printing, to even stop trying, um, in that moment, um, and then to, to make sure that we're supporting the community. Um, both of those decisions, I, I wouldn't have even been able to have the answers on how. I just knew that we had to make a call and then you know, just like work down the line. And that's what we've been doing the past 11 months is working down the line. And we've been talking about that a lot throughout this whole process, you know, whether it's like, right, you need food and water. Now you need cleaning supplies. Now you need emotional well-being healing and trauma healing working down the line. So, um, so yeah. And sometimes you like, obviously you can't just go, this is a plan of attack, but you just have to go with whatever it is you're feeling in that moment. Yeah. And that's, what you talk about, like just being a human and being connected and making sure that that part of who you are, you know, comes through in the work that you do. And then it was like you and Emerina set up that marquee, started with sandwiches and fruit and boxes of things that the the community would need, which obviously food and water mm. are going to be the most essentials at the beginning. Um, how quickly did that landslide into what was the email flood yeah and and you know just having like a three by three marquee and a table and look I don't even know where the marquee came from maybe we had it in the garage or somebody um that you know we were really quick to talk to had brought it along and then next minute there was like loaves of bread and a bunch of bananas and there was like some long life milk and and then there was volunteers right and those volunteers were like you mob and local mob and that you know that was because of social media and the connections that we'd already had um, and so I think that's what's really special about the the beginnings of this was that we relied heavily on people that we'd already had connections with and people that were very much part of our Bundjalung community, whether it was here in Lismore or whether it was, you know, up on um, Byron Bay country or, or down south, that as soon as the word got out, that's when the support came and it came tremendously. And uh, that's such a, you know, special part of what happened. Um but, you know, I talk about also the um, the reputation of the Koori Mail 
as an Aboriginal business, uh, you know, this this iconic organisation in black media that's been around for 30 years that, you know, um, putting the Koori Mail's name on the line, us all putting our own personal names on the line, you know, yourself included, Kiri and everybody else, you know, Noel, Wayne, everybody that was part of, you know, this fierce volunteer group from the start, putting ourselves out there, putting the Koori Mail out there in the hopes that one person would go, I need to help this mob because I I know that they know what they're doing and I know that they can provide care and support for their community because look at the work that they do out, you know, every other day. And I strongly feel that that's is how we were able to generate so much support because you all had reached out to your own networks and your contacts in the hopes that just one person or hundred or a thousand as it seems, you know, a million people um, had noticed what we were trying to do and also understood that it's not our day job. It's not something that we're funded to do. It's not something that we're obligated to do, uh, you know, within our roles and the work that we do. But this is our cultural responsibility. And that's what I, I, I really, you know, hope that people understand that uh, what we've been able to achieve is because of our cultural responsibility. And for me personally, that comes back to what the world knew I was going to be before they knew I was going to be male or female. That that comes back to me coming into this world as a First Nations person. So that's my foundations. That's my responsibility. That's my accountability. That's everything that I then make sure is part of every step that I take in my work, in my personal life you know, my other responsibilities, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And Tito, we spoke about this a a little bit when the hub started, but there was this idea that if we hadn't really set this up as a First Nations-led org, um, as a First Nations-led flood hub, that our people could have been left behind. Mm, mm. Um, You know, we can only just look at the history of this country to see that there's been division put in place between Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities by bureaucracy, by government, by policy making, by propaganda. Um, You know, why was it so pivotal and important, especially post-BLM, that we were First Nations flood hub run and organised. Yeah, and that's, uh, you know, the conversations that have come out of uh, raising this particular issue and topic, any chance that we can um, have really respectful and robust conversations about this, um, you know, I believe will contribute to, uh, you know, not just how we prepare as a community in the event of another natural disaster or crisis or tragedy, but making sure that this understanding, this respect, this acknowledgement um, about, you know, these gaps that are still missing in in terms of like relationships between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, um, certainly in this particular case, things like how disconnected emergency services are to our communities. And so the reality is, and what we've been really vocal about, is that we know who's in our communities. Um, And again, coming back to cultural responsibility, that we had to do what we had to do, uh, regardless of whether anybody told us to or not. 
that we just knew that it was our responsibility to reach out to those communities, whether it was Gundarimba, Box Ridge, Cabbage Tree Island, whether it was... Um, Malabugama. Yeah, exactly, Ayugo. as far out as there, you know, having one person where a bridge is cut off and, you know, he needs access to food and, and supplies. Um, even though he's one person in that area, his life is still valued to us. That's our cultural responsibility, that we're, nobody lets, gets left behind, that we're looking after them. He's also an ex-NRL player, you exactly know, so right. you've got to look yeah. after <laughs> them, you know. They entertained us for so long. And anyone who knows black people, we love yeah. NRL. We don't dare leave our footy brothers behind. Um, but, you know, just, I don't know, and, and sometimes I just get really frustrated because it seems so surprising to non-Indigenous people, you know, to white followers that, um, we go the extra mile, you know, like, oh, my God, you did this incredible thing where you made sure all your communities were okay. Well, yes, this is what it was. We we know that world. We know that world. Our ancestors were part of that world where nobody gets left behind. We know that world. It's just that you have not lived in that world because you created this society, you know, over 230 years ago where um, – you know, we talk a lot about not having hierarchy and title. So it's like your how you care and provide for people. Um, your world is based on hierarchy and title. Who's more important or who's valued more or, you know, what are the steps to get there? And, and, and like, you know, the policies and the procedures and all the red tape. Whereas for us, it was like, we just know what we need to do. You know, putting up a Facebook post going, right, or your mob out at Karakai and Box Ridge, you know, Lorraine's your contact person. She's going to meet the boat, she's going to get the groceries, she's going to get the supplies and she's going to hand them out and she's going to take them out there or, you know, the helicopter's going to drop. This is your con contact person. You know, um, my cousin Ash and, um, you know, and all the other boys getting a boat and circling Gundarimba because even though they weren't inundated with water, they still needed supplies because they were cut off by power. But we knew that Ash had a boat, <laughs> you know, so we could it, – and, and it's that thing is that we just – we went into – survival mode but we went into survival mode because we're so good at it and that is the reality of how we live and breathe and work and and exist as black fellas but also that's the reality of us being forced into um, resilience and survival and so when people say I can't believe you did all this you know it's it's amazing I go well let's unpack that as part of the education process that you do realise that this is something that we've, uh, you know, um, inherited because of the history of this country. Um, and fortunately for our mob, when they need to be taken care of, we know how to do that well. And, you know, this has been happening in our communities and is still happening in our communities. It's just that we got the media attention, yeah. that people said, oh, look, here's Aboriginal people looking after Aboriginal people and non-Aboriginal people as well on, yeah. in this region. You know, we know that our people are able to, to look after each other. And, you know, you said this... Um, quote which you just touched on which is like you said this quote in the Harper's Bazaar article that came out about how the women stepped up and you said there are no hidden agendas no hierarchy systems everyone's equal without a title that is just seems like sums up the whole essence of what the hub was mm. for mm. the entire year last year yeah you know and why do you think you know, that particular quote, like, why is that so important when we're looking at First Nations-led 
um, disaster reliefs, often First Nations-led anything. Yeah, and, and you know, um, and I'm such a visual person, so I'm literally visualising those moments where we all met and gathered and we had a debrief or we had a briefing in the morning or, uh, you know, even just picturing you standing there with this red notebook uh, and, and you had a circle of people around you. So it wasn't you, you know, sitting at a table. It wasn't you um, sitting in a position or, you know, even just your body language where it was like, right, I'm here uh, with that, you know, saviour mentality. I'm here um, to dictate to you what you need to do. I'm not here to listen. It was a complete opposite. And this is what's so special about what we were able to do was that uh, we all came together in equal space in equal space, acknowledging that, um, you know, leadership means very different things, you know, for us mob, it comes in different ways, but ultimately, um, leadership is not about that dictatorship, about one person making key decisions. It's very much about how do we strategize together to make sure that, um, we're considering what it means to, to care for people in a holistic way. And that comes back to how we communicate, how we respect that people have their own ideas that are really valid and important. Um, but also that we don't play into like, you know, those colonial behaviours and attitudes and mentalities um, that it is about hierarchy and title because that doesn't serve our people. It never did. Like I said, we don't know that world. Uh, you know, what we know is that everybody who has something to say deserves to be listened and that we all agree that, um, you know, decisions that are made are the best way to support people. And, you know, um, just just little things like uh, have, knowing each other well enough that if, if a, an individual or if a certain type of uh, organisation or corporate or something came down on the ground that day and wanting to offer support, that everybody knew to direct that person to me. Uh, because in my profession, I might speak a different language to what somebody else does. And yeah, so, you like know. I blast like, them, you know. <laughs> um, you got the media but, mouth, baby. <laughs> but just... I don't know. And I'm just so like grateful and, you know, can't help but get emotional about this deep respect and understanding that we all had for each other from the get go. Because for somebody to go, right, that person should go and see Nay. That person, I'm going to direct you over to Ella or Kiri or Noel or Wayne or whoever it was at that time, that we all knew each other so intimately because we're mob. And because we've all been watching each other in our fields of work and what we do, that um, we had this really organic system of providing relief and support. And it wasn't about databases. It wasn't about setting up, you know, uh, spreadsheets and, and all this stuff that um, can seem really tedious and mechanical to us. We just wanted to get in there and do it. And the best way that we could have done that was trust that the people that surrounded us knew what they were doing. Um, and I think, yeah, like you, you can't explain those emotions and feelings when you just go, right, that was the right person at the right time for us. And the, and then the proof in that was, you know, the volunteers that had stayed with us right until the end. And the result. Of yeah. The and the impact. result of just getting it done and the impact and people still saying to us how grateful and thankful, you know, that they are, um, you know, for that help. And then, but, you know, at the same time ensuring that, um, you know, the Koori Mail was supported as well. And that that didn't just come from 
me as the general manager, uh, you know, that was very much my job to do. But it came from the same volunteers that were sending out cleaners to people's houses, that were coordinating drop-offs of tools and equipment. It came from that as well. Because to be able to do what we did so well and for it to function so seamlessly um, for something that's not our day job meant that we were able to give the attention to what the Koori Mail's needs were, especially our staff, and to continue operations. And I strongly believe that, you know, um, to take on this extra work of supporting the community and then, you know, to to do that and give that support to the Koori Mail is a reason why we were back up printing after just three editions, you know. <laughs> um, there's a lot of layers. It's an amazing feat when you think about what, Lismore looked like. Mm. We got hit by the biggest flood in colonial history, 28th of February, then got hit by the second, second big, flood, yeah. and you're only out of additions by three. By three, yeah, by three papers. So, Real and testament. and I mean, look, and I joke about if anybody from like, you know, work cover or HR or something, look, you know, I'll speak openly about this, came on site and went, why are you running electrical cords from a generator across the road through the windows of the top building? Because we've got a paper to get out, man. Like, you know, um, and I think that's it. It's like, you know, blackfellas just don't ever stop trying. We just don't ever stop trying. Every day is a challenge. Not that we wake up looking for it, but it just so happens that it lands on our laps, whether it's, you know, community politics, whether it's lateral violence, whether it's, you know, social issues, whether it's, you know, the bigger issues that we're still dealing with, deaths in custody and, you know, and land rights and, um, you know, now this whole conversation, uh, you know, within Parliament and how that affects our people. Like every day there's something um, and it was so intensified <laughs> over the past, you know, 12 months but... Yeah, well, you know, looking back on it, and this is probably the first time that we're able to sit down and kind of dissect it because we're creating content about it. But it's, you know, to look back and go, there are so many things that people don't know went on behind the scenes that were either a real challenge or were actual, you know, just these little hidden gems along the way that only make us stronger and more capable as mob. And getting that newspaper out, as you said, you know, the Korean Mail, I mean, I grew up, with the Korean mail next mm. to the toilet seat. You know, I'm sure <laughs> yeah. most like Aboriginal <laughs> kids did. Um, reading all about our people in this way that was positive and uplifting and it's not just a newspaper for our people. It's actually a recognition of the accomplishments that we make every single day as Indigenous people fighting a colonial system. So when we talk about, you know, getting that 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 media release back up and that that paper out, mm. it, it was so pivotal and important at that time. It was like, you know, excuse my language, but F the bureaucracy and the red tape, like, yep. you know, the OH&S and mm. all of these white frameworks that we yep. as Indigenous people have to fit into just to kind of exist in this paradigm. That mm. came up so much for us during the flood hub. Oh, absolutely, to the point where um, I felt like we were being punished for just exercising our uh, cultural right, for exercising our cultural responsibility, um, for making decisions independently because we knew that we had to. I felt like the whole time we were being punished right up until, you know, now and obviously there's a, a, a lot of different layers to that and why, you know, we felt that way. But ultimately, 
um, the foundations of the Koori Mail, you know, being 100% owned by five local Aboriginal corporations and organisations, being independently run for over 30 years, uh, you know, being the voice of Indigenous Australia, you know, that's how the Koori Mail presents itself. So um, I guess exercising our voice in terms of our own decision-making so that we can self-determine what it looks like to care for our people, so that we can uh, put ourselves in a position where we're supported by our own mob to do that, uh, to invite people into um, the ways that we work. Uh, it was really important to stand our ground um, because we could see how we were able to get those results that we needed to get back up and running, to stay operational as a newspaper, to start printing again, but to make sure ultimately that our Bundjalung community was looked after, uh, you know, post the floods. Um, and some people label that as being, you know, um, disruptive and rebellious and not following, you know, rules and regulations and everything. But for us, it's like at what point uh, do you do everything possible that you you know you have to do to make sure that people are okay or to save a business and and you know um and I'm a mum um and it's like well at what point do you give everything for your child you know do you sacrifice like everything you know people talk that about that a lot when you know when they become parents so for us it was like well we have to give everything we possibly can <laughs> to save this organisation, to make sure we don't lose too much time on missed additions because, you know, that's our revenue, that's our income. Um, so there was a lot to consider, <laughs> a lot to consider. But um, and we're not there yet, you know. But it also highlights, like, self-governance. Like, yeah. that's what it felt like for yeah. us, like a real putting in of self-governance into our regional space where we could melt away what, mm. you know, we had army and firemen and yep. police, they were all coming to us looking for us to be the leaders. Yep. And it's like when we actually uplift our community, our Indigenous people, and we make them leaders and we do it mm -hmm. with a framework of culture and a framework of dissolving colonial ways of being in the world, real change can be made. And I I think, you know, it was it, it impacted the non-Indigenous Australians so significantly mm. to see us there on the forefront supporting them and also accepting them yeah. after so much kind of warfare, mm. if you like, that we've mm. had on these lands. Um you know, what, what are your reflections upon that or what are your reflections upon the non-Indigenous communities and how they saw us Yeah, or uh, see us? Oh, and there's so many stories, you know, like so many yarns and stories. And I know as a, as a group of, you know, volunteers and mob, we've sat back and we have a little giggle and a little laugh and, and we just go, could you imagine, um, you know, some of the people that have um, held our hand during this? it's not something they would have done before. You know, those generations where they're still trying to unpack what they've been taught and how they've, you know, perceived blackfellas and the history of, of, of this country. They come from those generations where some of, you know, some people still exist in our communities where they'll never unpack that. But the ones that have, I strongly feel their association with what we've done, uh, you know, down here um, has contributed to how, just, you know, that 1% that 
that has changed their thinking or that attitude that they maybe have inherited and through no fault of their own. And I'm very understanding of that. You know, uh, like the older white followers that come in, you know, we're getting a feed at the kitchen and we're sitting down with the older elders, you know, and having yarns and and then finding a common ground or connection. Like, oh, I used to play football with your Uncle Lester or I used to play football with your Uncle Digby or, you know, those like special moments or the, um, you know, the the people that work in the businesses that would come down um, and connect with us that way and every other day they wouldn't have crossed paths with anybody from the Courier Mail or, um, you know, just having messages. And, you know, the other day some beautiful lady dropped by, a non-Indigenous woman, um, she crochets, she made these deadly little bingings, these little turtles. And I shared it on a social media page, uh, a Lismore group. And um, the amount of people that have poured into um, this post just saying how amazing that was. Now she was a non-Indigenous person, created these little turtles that had black fella colours and that on it and then dropped them off to us as a gift to say thank you. Um, there's a lot of those little moments that have happened um, along the way. Um, I do, I do want to talk about the relationships um, and you mentioned this before um, between the Kurimal, our mob volunteers, the work that we've done in the emergency services because to have these, you know, men and women that have worked tirelessly in these fields um, for years come to us and say, thank you for supporting us. You know, I remember one of one of the older men from the fire station came down, I think it was about maybe four weeks into post-flood, uh, and he just stood there. He got some, he got some food and water from the kitchen, stood there, and he was welling up with tears, and he said, you know, since 2017, it's been a real struggle to, to get, uh, updated resources and support for the work that we do. And he was just, uh, couldn't believe how much we had generated in terms of support for the community, seeing people come in and register for free hire, the generators and the um, pressure cleaners and all this equipment. And they're kind of standing around going, you're doing just as much work as, as we're doing, but you're also making sure that we're being looked after. Um, and we're unfunded. And they're, yeah, exactly right. And we're unfunded, you know. And so to have, you know, these people in these positions where their day job is to rescue and provide relief, unloading to us because they needed that rescue and relief for themselves and the gratitude that they had expressed and still express around us being able to support them with that is uh, is really special. And I've always said what you see down here is a great example of how black fellas and white fellas can just work together to get the job done. If you park your egos, you park your titles, you park, you know, um, whatever perceptions you've had of black fellas before, you park that down the road... <laughs> with the rubble and the pile of shit that's been gutted out from the buildings, you park it and you sit it there and then you come into our space because this is about you stepping into our space, what we've created down here. Um, and, and, I mean, look, there's so many stories. Also almost like a changing of power dynamics in a way, you know, for so long, not only our ancestors but trapped in the cells of our bodies is this idea of like being the slave to the master of the white man, mm. you know, and what there was was a real kind of turning of the tides here, but in a different way where we didn't become the master, we're just, you know, interconnected as community. Mm. I think it was really refreshing. Yeah. I think it was like also noticing the impact it made on 
our Indigenous volunteers to come to a place where they felt so respected Mm. by the rest of the community. And I want to touch on, you know, I'm strong on the black matriarch and I do believe our black women hold a lot for our Mm. communities always, always showing up. But our brothers stood by us day in, day out. And there's something to be said about you know, an Indigenous man, and it's different to a non-Indigenous man. He's Mm -hmm. not as programmed by the patriarchy. He's actually felt the impacts of the patriarchy in a very different way. Mm. And so when we talk about men and women volunteering, sometimes people say, oh, women are constantly volunteering. But we we have to look at it from the perspective of Indigenous communities because our black men have had so much had happened mm-hmm. to them and still have so much happened to them and are completely disrespected as their places of leaders within mm. our community. So I just want to touch on those kind of differences and how our men showed up and and just yeah. give a little moment to them because love oh, them. Oh, absolutely. Um, no one will love the black man more than the black woman ever. I will guarantee you that I feel that in my heart and soul uh, every single day when I look at the black men in my family, when I look at the black men in my community that I know that I can depend on and go to that are my greatest advocates and supporters, not just for me personally, but for the work that we do here um, in community for the Koori Mail, um, you know, and then to have those men down here on the ground with us from day one right until the very end and I'm so excited that you know um, they get to share their stories um, about this um, in this series but um, you know I think there's not enough acknowledgement uh, and even within our own families and communities around the role that our men play uh, the focus is always on the negative. The focus is always on, um, you know, the the stuff that's not not right instead of the stuff that absolutely is. And I think if anyone's had the chance to cross paths with some of the men that have been by our side down here in that, you know, as volunteers, as leaders, um, but also to guide us in their own way where it might not have been, you know, front-facing to other people, um, but for us we've certainly felt it. Uh, we feel it in the body language. We feel it in how they speak to us and they um, address us and the conversations that we have. And, and I'm saying this because it's it's very much about a connection and about emotionally how we connect and engage with our black men. And if you haven't experienced that, um, then I don't know quite how to explain it. Uh, but, you know, just little things like whenever there's been an issue or, um, you know, there's been a bit of an obstacle um, yes, it has been, you know, us titters in the front kind of leading that and, and troubleshooting that. But as soon as we turn around, they're standing right there with us. Um, it's almost like it, it's it's like that spirit. So they're there physically, but what we feel more without them having to say anything or do anything is that spirit. And, and I think that's just what I've really felt was that um, at any time I felt that, oh, this is this is going to be a challenge or how do we do this or who do we talk to about this, uh, you know, the brother, a brother rocks up and gives that advice, you know, whether it's Shane Phillips from, you know, Sydney 
traveling all the way up here, whether it's Joe Hedger or, you know, Brendan Williams or, um, you know, brother boy from Fire and Rescue, that every time we turned around and we had an issue with how we were going to navigate roads or do food drops or whatever it is, like there he was, like they, they're just like a jack-in-the-box. They just pop up and I strongly feel that that is the, that ancestral guidance and force comes into play there. And I know that within our culture we have that history of men and women um, finding themselves in each other's spaces and environments for that very reason. Um, and I want to make sure that I'm continuing to have the conversation around what our black men do right, because that's so important. They deserve to be celebrated and acknowledged. Um, and as a mum to a little black boy, I want to make sure that he grows up in a community, in an environment where he is celebrated for the things that are right and not for the things that uh, society predetermines will go wrong for him. Um, and we are so lucky we are so lucky to have those men that have been, you know, by our side. Um, yeah. I feel like it's also, you know, no one will ever love a black man the way a black woman will. Mm. But it's also like no one will ever respect a black man yes. the way a black woman will. Yes. And like that, that's what we saw, their respect for us, our respect for them and how we lifted each other through this powerful portal of respect. Yeah. Because if we keep focusing on people's trauma stories on the negativity of people, and we keep forcing that onto them, even if it's just a look in the eye, you look at a black man as you're mm. walking in a mall or you're walking down the street and you cross the road and you don't smile and you inflict this constant idea that you're somehow, you know, negative, you're mm. so somehow aggressive, you know, angry black man, angry black woman. Yeah. Well, we're fucking angry for a reason. <laughs> exactly. But, right. you know, but last year was a showing of this. Yeah. Like when you hold each other in deep respect, you allow each other to flourish into the mm. people that we want to be. Yeah, exactly right. And I was having this conversation a couple of weeks ago around, uh, you know, um, a friend of mine that's just released a book, Brother, um, and obviously within that book there's some really personal sharing. Um, and I know that um, it takes a very uh, – that vulnerability to put yourself out there and to share your story. Um, and I just, you know, remember having a conversation with him about it and saying, you know, I feel so strongly that as a black woman um, – I am here to uplift our black men. And I'm not saying that we don't acknowledge, um, you know, um, history or we don't acknowledge, you know, things that have happened um, or we don't acknowledge that some of our men uh, through whatever circumstances, how they've grown up, um, you know, have to heal, have to deal with behaviours, have to acknowledge, you know, their behaviours and, and, and that stuff that people like to focus on, right? Because it's far easy to bring out people's, um, you know, the negative instead of focusing on the positive. So I'm not taking away from that and I absolutely will call it out if it's necessary um, and people know that I will. But I also want to acknowledge that um, it is also my job as a black woman to uphold a black man you know, to help carry him when he's down, to make him um, understand himself and how he should be viewed as a black man, um, you know, to acknowledge his goals and his aspirations and his dreams and, you know, whatever else has happened in his past um, that hasn't directly affected me, that's not something that I can control. 
What I can control is how can I make you be better or how can I make you feel like you can be great and can be better? And these are the conversations that I have with myself around how am I going to raise this little black boy, (laughs) you know, like how can I make sure that as his black mum, you know, that he is growing up in a world where he is so proud and relentless and strong in who he is as a black man. And for me to do that, I now have to take a look at the men in my community, whether it's my relatives, friends, even men that I've, you know, um, I've not had that connection with but how do I make sure that when he's sharing on Facebook that he started a new business or whatever it is that I celebrate that like we have that responsibility um you know and I just yeah I just wish more of our mob and community would focus on that um and I think sometimes it's naturally given to us as women we need to make sure that it's given to our men And I'm just so proud that we've had these really beautiful experiences with our men over the past 12 months because I wonder if at any point in their lives they felt just how much they are loved and appreciated um, outside of what's happened the past 12 months. Yeah. I'm sure, Nay, that not only your son but all the next generation to come is going to be looking up for you (laughs) as a community member, as a black matriarchy, as the woman who stands in her truth and authenticity better than anyone I know. And you say it how it is, Tida, and you're always full of heart. And, Mm. you know, it's such a pleasure to grow with you and know you and... um, you know, we're coming to the end of the interview. I've got yeah. one last question for you. <laughs> we could yarn for days. I know. i got one that I think I'm going to ask everyone. But, mm. you know, the theme of the series is custodial care. And so what does custodial care mean for you? Oh, I think acknowledging that we cannot... We cannot provide care unless we listen. And I I have been saying this over the past 12 months, that that was the reason why we were able to do what we did. That was the reason why we were able to support, you know, the people that needed help in, in their time of crisis was we acknowledged that we had to listen, that it wasn't about uh, our... Uh, ideas. Uh, It wasn't about um, our thoughts. We weren't feeling that in the moment. It was about their experience and their thoughts and acknowledging that, um, you know, the last thing in the world that people need to feel like when they've been through the most traumatic event of their lives is that they don't have their voice. And so for us, it was about listening. And I think custodial care, I think, you know, uh, whether it's like caring for people, caring for mob, caring for country, caring for how we move forward is about listening. Like something so simple, but there's there's different types of listening, right? So there's being in the moment, listening to what somebody has to say, walking away and not actually processing and dissecting it, that it makes you want to move mountains within yourself, you know. It goes from your binangs down to your jinangs, you know, and you're walking around and taking action because you've really heard what that person has said. Um, I'd like to think 
that that's how we absolutely endeavoured to operate over the past 12 months and moving forward. I think that is the example that has been set, that, you know, caring, um, looking out for people, uh, you know, supporting them, we absolutely have to listen first because um, we're part of the story. But in a time of crisis and when people need something, it's about their story first. And thank you. I've not, you know, feel like I could never say it enough, but thank you for everything that you've done. Um, and I think taking this opportunity now to to process and to, to yarn outside of everything that's happened is really important because I think it um, pays homage to the immense amount of support that, you know, yourself and so many others have given us and this is a really nice time for some storytelling so thank you and let's keep the care going yeah deadly thanks Matilda. we'd like to thank our sponsors healthy north coast for supporting us to put together these stories so that we may share our experiences with all our community across this nation